Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. We continue our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, today as Dr. Neufeld leads us through Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, with a message entitled, Gaining Everything. Well, let's join Dr. Neufeld now. I find that too often, Christians speak about sacrifice at the expense of speaking about rewards. You know, it's almost as if we're afraid that if we speak about rewards, well, we worry that our faith is simply a matter of what we can get out of it rather than our love for God. See, here's how I see it. The Bible is filled with warnings, and it's filled with the promises of rewards. The words, take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, well, those words that warn of the dire consequences of sin are too often skipped over. After all, we tell ourselves people shouldn't be motivated by fear. And the words of Jesus, great will be a reward in heaven, well, that's greeted with almost embarrassment. We feel we don't want to be motivated by the promise of what we can get out of the bargain. Now, in place of both the blatant warnings and the promises of reward, many Christians have decided that the only pure motivation for following Christ, well, it has to be love. Because a sacrifice is demanded of us, such as, well, loving our enemies and giving sacrificially and abandoning earthly pleasures, we tend to think that only love can draw us to make those sacrifices. I have a sneaking suspicion that when we say these things, we want to attach some form of virtue to our sacrifices. After all, if the only reason we're sacrificing something is because we want to get something greater, well, according to that thinking, all virtue is stripped away from the act. But in contrast, consider Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in the field found in Matthew 13. Jesus tells of a man who's walking through a field and he's uncovering a priceless treasure. And then he goes and sells everything that he has and buys the field because, to put the matter plainly, all that he has is insignificant next to the treasure in the field. In other words, the man made a great sacrifice because he was counting on a greater reward. He was motivated by what he would get in the end. Look at it this way. No one puts money into a retirement fund because all they want to do is sacrifice some of their hard-earned money. Instead, the only reason they don't spend everything that they have is because they believe that in the end, the money that was saved will provide for them a reward in the end. Of course, love motivates us, or as the King James Bible translated 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us, or the love of Christ controls us. But to argue that this alone is our motivation is simply to turn our backs on what the Bible teaches, and not just in one place, but in many places. C.S. Lewis referred to what he called the unblushing promises of reward promised to us in the Gospels. See, by unblushing, Lewis meant that the Bible is not embarrassed by the offer of rewards, nor of using rewards as a motivation for faithfulness. Indeed, Jesus was not shy at all to promise his followers a great reward in the world to come. And so when the account of Abraham begins, it should not surprise the Bible reader to find it laced with the promises of reward. God, as we'll see, motivates Abram by offering him land, a nation larger than any the world has ever seen, and a blessing so great that to fail to bless Abram will result in negative consequences. 
Well, let's read today's text, and I'm reading Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we've noticed that this call comes to Abram while he's living in Haran. We've also noticed that the initial call of God came while Abram was living in Ur, and that call seemed to have sparked a family pilgrimage to Canaan that started in Ur of the Chaldeans, moved the family to Haran, and then the pilgrimage ground to a halt. Somehow, the trappings of Haran seemed greater than completing the pilgrimage. There can be no doubt that it was Terah, a family leader, who decided the pilgrimage was over. But with the death of Abram's father, it would seem that God called Abram a second time. In some ways, the second call is like the first one. Go from your country. Abandon your familiar surroundings. Complete the journey that you've begun. But something new is added in Genesis 12. God says, go from your kindred and your father's house. It turns out that Abram is called to make a sacrifice larger than he had expected. Up till now, Abram never dreamt that his pilgrimage would mean that his extended family was to be left behind. To go without family would have been unthinkable for him. No one in that culture identified himself or herself as an individual, but rather as a member of their family. And even though his father is dead, it seems more than likely that his brother has arrived in Iran and the family has been reunited. His mother and whatever other wives Terah may have had, along with other family members, along with household servants, are all again located in one place. Abram would have believed that if the pilgrimage was to be completed, it has to include all of the family. But now for the first time, he's told that the sacrifice that God has called him to make is far larger than he had ever imagined. I remember a number of years ago talking to a couple that had dedicated their lives to missions. When each of their three children were born, they laid their hands on the infants and dedicated them to a life of missions. And in turn, as they grew up, each one felt a call to missions. But in here, the couple had tears in their eyes when they told how much it hurt to watch their children leave and go overseas and to realize that unlike many of their friends, they would have limited access to their grandchildren. The reality of what they had done so many years earlier was now being keenly felt. And this is the point. Abram would have thought about every family relationship that would now be broken, and the sacrifice was greater than he had ever imagined. There's something very similar in the way that Jesus calls his disciples. Mark 1, 17 to 18 says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. We see in the call of Jesus a very similar formula. Christ calls his disciples to abandon their fishing industry, and with that call comes the promise of something greater. Rather than fishing for fish, they will fish and catch men. They're called to leave something that has minor significance to that which has major significance. I want to address two things that arise from this idea. The first has to do with a concept that is often expressed. It's the idea that the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. That is, the idea that God calls Abram into a covenant apart from any conditions that Abraham must fulfill. And I say this because people often talk about God's unconditional promises. 
But I've scoured my Bible, and I, and I find very few of those so-called unconditional promises. They all come with condition. Here, for instance, is one example, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we see the condition. It's simply this, confess and believe. And the promise, you'll be saved. And so it appears that the Abrahamic covenant is a conditional covenant. You leave Haran, you leave your family, and in response, I'll give you certain things. There's a great deal of confusion here. See, for some people, if a promise or a covenant with God is conditional, then we can't be certain of the outcome. That's because we fear that we might not meet the condition, and so we're never sure about the promise. But move forward to Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18. There we read, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, clearly, in that text, God tells Abraham that he will bless him because he has not withheld his son. So it seems very clearly stated that obedience on the part of Abraham is the condition upon which the promise stands. But if that is so, and if we transfer that idea to the New Testament, are we then to assume that our obedience is the condition upon which the covenant in the blood of Christ stands? I hope you see the problem. John 3.36 says, He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God rests on him. And, and Hebrews 5 verse 9 says, Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So clearly we'll need some time to consider the nature of the agreement that God makes with Abram. And in the end, I will say that the promise is both conditional and it is absolutely certain at the same time. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425, and please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants. Genesis 12, 1-3 has been called the Abrahamic Covenant. According to many Bible teachers, there are four foundational covenants in the Bible. The first is the covenant with Abraham. The second is the covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai. The third, the covenant with David, spoken of in 2 Samuel 7. And the final, the one that sums up everything, is the new covenant in the blood of Christ. But what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. In the Bible, that agreement is between God and man. 
But God always initiates all covenants, and he ratifies every covenant. When Bible teachers speak about unconditional covenants, they mean by that that all the binding agreements that God makes are both initiated by God and are completely dependent on God alone. God makes promises. He then draws out a binding agreement in which he puts it in writing, if you will, to commit himself to do certain things. In relationship to Abraham, here's how it works. God makes a promise to Abraham that he will do certain things. He stakes his reputation and character on the promise. In other words, if he fails to deliver, it will become public knowledge that God makes promises that he doesn't keep, but that would be unthinkable. Of course God cannot fail, and so this covenant, this binding agreement with Abraham is certain what God has promised that he will do. But here's where we run into problems. Abram is to leave his country and his kindred. He's not to do what he's done before, that is, start on a journey and then stop because of the demands of his family. God demands that Abram leave his extended family behind and journey to the land that he will show him. By reading Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it seems that everything hangs on Abram's response to go. If he says goodbye to his extended family, well, then the promises of God come about. But if he doesn't, then there will be no promised land and so forth. And that's true, but still, the whole thing does not hang on the fickleness of Abram's decision-making process. Let's turn to Ezekiel 36, verse 27. There we read, I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or consider what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so I hope you see what's at issue. If God commits himself to cause Abram to obey, to create in him a heart that has the will to obey, and if that's the case, then we can see that the call to Abram is both conditional and absolutely certain. God will both ensure that Abram will obey and that God will keep all of his promises. Everything depends on God. And so God oversees the entire covenant with Abram. He encounters him. He calls him. He changes his heart. He promises the rewards. It's the nature of a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Now, that takes us to the next issue. What is it that God actually promises Abram? Indeed, as we examine it closely, we're going to see that God promises Abram seven things, and it's not without significance, for seven is the symbolic number of completeness. When Abram goes and sacrifices his homeland and his extended family, God will so arrange it that nothing is lacking. Abram will receive all the rewards that God promises. So let's look at the seven promises. The first, I will make of you a great nation. As Genesis continues, we find that this means that the offspring of Abram will be so great that they will outnumber the grains of sand on the shore or the number of the stars in the sky. Now, it must be said, that although the nation of Israel, that is, Abram's physical offspring, grew to become a numerous and powerful people, the full extent of Abram's offspring would not be realized until the birth of a global church found in every tongue and tribe and people and racial group on earth. Now the second promise, I will bless you. Now the idea of blessing in the book of Genesis always speaks of God's gracious favor. 
In Genesis, this most often speaks of prosperity and fertility and victory over one's enemies. But behind all of that is the idea that God uses all of his resources as God at Abram's disposal. God will not hesitate at any moment to bring good to Abram. Now, the third promise, I will make your name great. This is particularly interesting because in the chapter prior to this one in Genesis 11, we're told of the people who constructed the Tower of Babel. The motivation for the tower is stated very well in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's a fascinating line. They committed themselves to become great. But here we are so many years after the commitment of the people of Babel to become great so that their names would never be forgotten. And now we don't remember a single person from that city. Every one of them have been forgotten. But not so in the case of Abram. His name is still repeated on the earth today. Indeed, it's one of the most famous names in all of human history. Now to promise number four. You will be a blessing. In other words, Abram was to overflow with blessing to others. God's purpose was not to limit his power and his love and his goodness to Abraham alone, but that Abram would be the source of blessing to the earth. Promise number five, I will bless those who bless you. Now, here I think it important to point out a grammatically important issue. The use of the word I refers to one who is God. I, God, will bless you. And then the second half of the sentence, those who bless you, that is, they are plural. So it's anticipated that multitudes of people would also bless Abram. But what does it mean to bless Abram? We know that in Genesis 15, Melchizedek, who's the priest of Salem, offers up a prayer of blessing for Abram. We know that in chapter 20, Abimelech, king of Gerar, could have cursed Abram, for Abram had acted unjustly toward him, and yet he offers Abram his own land to feed his livestock. Blessing within Genesis can mean everything from offering up prayers to giving Abram something. But the promise of God is that any people group that blesses Abram, God will turn around and then bless them. Now, promise number six, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, here the grammar shifts. Before it was a plural, a people group would bless Abram, but now it's an individual who curses Abram. If any individual curses Abram, that person will be cursed. And finally, we come to promise number seven. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I know that some translations translate this verse by making it say, all the families of the earth will bless themselves by you. Now, without going into all the implications of how we should translate this passage, at the very least, the promise is this, that Abraham's blessing is the desire of the earth. What God does to and for Abram is what the entire earth should seek for. What God does for Abram is the plan for blessing for every people group on the face of the earth. Now, taking these seven promises together, let's understand the story. Here's what Abraham had before he left Haran. He had an extended family, he had some land and a business, and he had a barren wife and he had some wealth. But here's what Abram had after he left Haran and embraced the covenant. He had a larger family than he could imagine. Indeed, he had a nation, he didn't just have land, he had a country. He didn't have a barren wife, he had the mother of a nation. He didn't just have wealth. 
He had a blessing from the Creator who owned all things. I hope you see the contrast. In Haran lay comfort and one's family, but there also was barrenness, obscurity, and the end of a family line. In God lay an immortal destiny with more children than one could name. And that is the very heart of this account. How much did Abram sacrifice? Well, that depends on one's perspective. If one's eyes are on what he had lost, well, then the sacrifice does seem significant. If one's eyes are on what he has gained, then the sacrifice seems like nothing at all. And isn't it the same today? If we give up everything for the cause of Christ, what have we really sacrificed? Is not the promised reward far greater than anything we've lost? For what have we given up that we were not going to lose on this earth anyway? And what have we gained but that which is ours eternally? It was Jim Elliot, the famous martyr, who said it well. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Indeed, in the promises that come to us in Christ, we have lost nothing. We've gained everything. John, this has been an insightful message for me. You know, we're often held back, I think, sometimes by those things we see as being most valuable, those things we're not willing to give up. And yet when we respond to God's calling, we're really not giving up anything at all, are we? Yeah, that's precisely, I think, what this account teaches us. You know, it's fascinating when we think about what we might give up. Uh, the reality is we're going to give everything up anyway. I mean, naked I came you know, from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. I will take nothing with me in the land to come. So there is nothing that you hold on to right now that's not slipping from your fingers anyway. And God takes from us that which we can't keep, and he's offering us that which we can't lose. And it just takes so much work to get us to understand that. And once we begin to understand that, then we begin to think, uh, as so many of uh, men and women of God have said, I've never sacrificed a thing in my life. I just simply received from God's hands. You know, and I think sometimes we don't consider what we might miss out on if we don't follow through on what God has called us to do. Yeah, I know that they're the rewards that God promises us, not only in eternity, but what we would have right now, so far exceeds anything that this world has to give. We just need to get our eyes on that glorious truth. Thanks so much, John. Return again tomorrow with us, would you? Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. God never promised that this life would be easy, but he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way in our working, deciding, moving, marrying and burying, through grief or joy in family and community, God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. To request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.